This episode is brought to you by Osprey. Tired of your tattered old climbing pack? It's time you met the Zealot from Osprey. Osprey was born at the foot of the Sierras and came of age in the ranges, deserts, and canyons around Cortez, Colorado. And ever since, they've been elevating adventure through innovative pack design along the way. When it comes to climbing, their Zealot series is purpose-built and athlete-tested with ballistic nylon to defy years of dirtbagging. Their Zealot 40 is a proper crag bag, made with the same attention to detail and carrying comfort that Osprey is known for. And their Zealot 30 is made for your days that take you from work to the gym, using dual compartments to keep your everyday carrying and climbing gear separate. The Zealot is available online at osprey.com or at your local retailer. Hey everyone, Tommy Caldwell here. You know, everyone, at least in the climbing world these days, is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally, to live a less impactful life. And one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing, the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint, lower their chemical usage, make their products out of recycled materials, make products that just don't wear out. And, you know, the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware space is Edelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days, they make unquestionably the most high-quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners, and really, they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com. Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is my conversation with Andrew Bisharat. Andrew was on an earlier episode this season. It's actually an episode we recorded for the Runout podcast that he does with Chris Calouse and reposted it as part of this season. And when we're doing that conversation, we both realized we were going to be at Mountain Film Film Festival in Telluride, Colorado the following day. I hadn't seen Andrew in person in a long, long time. You know, we mostly see each other at uh, industry events and stuff. And then when I get to Mountain Film, he was there right in line. We were about to go to a filmmaker's party and it was just kind of serendipitous. I hadn't seen this person in so long and did a podcast together and then just kind of naturally saw each other in person. It was kind of a sign that I needed to have more in-depth conversation with Andrew. I saw the film that he's in called Resistance Climbing. It was part of Real Rock. I'm sure a lot of you all have seen that about Palestinian climbers and climbing in Palestine and Andrew's connections to all of that as a Palestinian American. That was just a a really powerful film, probably my favorite film of that weekend. It was just so serendipitous. And uh, we connected a couple weeks ago to do this conversation. He had just had some surgery on his shoulder, so he was feeling a little tired, but um, we had a great conversation, a lot about writing, a lot about, you know, Palestine. Andrew's just a very interesting voice in the climbing world. He's a very intelligent writer. I think we had a very heartfelt conversation. So hope you all enjoy this episode. Um, My only message here at the top is to support us on Patreon. Got a modest level of support and we could use some more. And when you sign up, you can get uh, some stickers and some zines and a shirt kind of based on the, the level that you support. And our Keep the Zine Alive campaign has surpassed 350 subscribers. We're on our way to 2,000. That's our goal by the end of the year. So check out climbingzine.com or just Google Climbing Zine Store and support Keeping the Zine Alive in print. This episode of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast is sponsored by Kilter. 
Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter Board. The Kilter Board has innovative light-up holds, a progressive app with animated functions, climbs for all abilities, and two layouts to choose from with large international online communities for each. There are over 66,000 problems in the original Kilter Board layout, and the newer Homebuilder layout comes with over 6,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos for motivation and beta, and even add your own videos to share with other users. The new map feature helps you find and connect to Kilter Boards nearest you. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, so we can help you get a Kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com and look for a link in our show notes. All right, without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Andrew. I am here with Andrew Bisharat, climber, writer, podcaster, I guess filmmaker now as well. Anything else in there in your uh, in your bio? Sleep deprived father and um, disgruntled dog parent at the moment. <laughs> Just had a shoulder surgery mm-hmm. and also a ruptured bicep surgery, and you're you're currently recovering from that. So extra appreciative and grateful that you would uh, chat with me today. So thank you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, my um, dog knocked me over out at uh, the crag the other day. She was romping with another dog behind my back, and I didn't... It's just kind of a freak accident where she she lurched and, like, took my legs out from underneath me, and I fell backwards and landed on my uh, on a straight arm and just tore my supraspinatus and subscap. Yeah, so I was kind of hemming and hawing about what whether it was just going to like fix itself or whatever for about a month you know after a few weeks i just couldn't get my still couldn't pick my arm up above my head and so i got an mri and surgery was uh highly recommended it went well and this is the first surgery i've had yeah so i've been going to pt and uh trying to learn how to type with kind of one and a half hands Mm. and continue to do work and you know all the other things but I was actually just thinking about, I don't know if you've ever had a big injury like this, Luke, but there's something kind of nice about the simplicity that something like this brings into your life where, you know, I don't need to like be worrying about projects that I may or may not send before the season ends this year and makes everything easy in a way. Like I just need to go to physical therapy twice a week and do the protocol and basically try to stay mentally healthy and, and then it'll be good to go. Yeah, that that sounds like a really good perspective. I haven't had a a major injury like that, but I have watched my mother go through like rotator cuff surgery and Mm. she's had to do it like she's about on her third and she actually did it. She fell in the Black Canyon while she was hiking. (laughs) She like used to love to 
hike in the Black Canyon when I lived in Gunnison, and I, I wasn't with her when it happened. I've like still to this day feel bad that like my mom, like also loved this place that I loved, and then like hurt her, her like hurt her shoulder, so like her worst injury of her life in the Black Canyon. But wow, sounds like yours was also kind of a freak thing that um, you couldn't plan for. But that that sounds like a really healthy um, attitude <laughs> around the situation. I was actually up in Squamish earlier this summer and I wasn't able to climb, but we had already planned this trip to go up with some friends and go bouldering and sport climbing and stuff like that. So I was just along for the ride and I was feeling pretty grumpy about the whole thing. Like I was out in the, this amazing destination among these beautiful rocks and just kind of wrangling children and trying not to be too grumpy about not being able to climb. And then like during that trip, I got the call from the surgeon who, who recommended that I get surgery. And, and at that point, I, it, it really made like a huge psychological difference for me. Cause I was like, oh, I don't need to like think about whether or not my shoulder is going to get better. There's, you know, all that uncertainty of just what, what's really going to happen or am I doing the right thing? And then it was kind of, it was like all decided for me. It was out of my hands. Like mm. in the next, you know, six months of my life were kind of determined in a way that Maybe it's a function of the the kind of um, how scatter shot my life is in general. That this kind of certainty and regimented schedule felt really like welcome, which is and it's a weird thing to say, but that's how it, how it made me feel. Yeah, that actually does make sense. Um, yeah, and so the last time we were chatting. Um, was uh for the the runout podcast your Mm -hmm. podcast with chris calouse and um it was kind of funny because i don't think we'd seen each other talk to each other in years many many years and then we did that episode which was great i've had a, a lot of feedback on that episode actually nice um and then um and we talked about a lot of, just about a lot about writing and print media. And like, I think it was a short conversation, but I was like, this is a conversation I could have had for three hours. <laughs> and then literally the next day I saw you in Telluride and I hadn't seen you yet <laughs> in probably like 10 years. And we had realized during the podcast, like, oh, you're going to be a mountain film. You have a film. I'm going to be a mountain film and I have a film. And then... I showed up and literally you were like one of the first person I saw. Like we were, we were both in line to go to this uh, pre-party thing and uh, it was super serendipitous and we got to chat a little bit. But as those things go, I think we just chatted for a little bit and then I actually got to talk to one of the uh, climbers in the film. And your, your film is called Free Palestine, is that right? No, it's called or Resistance Climbing. Resistance Climbing. Okay, Free Palestine yeah. is maybe like this sticker I... I saw her. Yeah, yeah. Free Palestine's a, a good slogan, um, yeah. but not the free, I don't know, Free Climb Palestine. There, there's potential for an, an alternate title there, but yeah, yeah. yeah it's so the, it's called Resistance Climbing. Resistance Climbing, and that was my favorite film of, of the entire weekend at Mountain Film. Oh, um, thanks. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of funny because I think a lot of people had seen it at Rio Rock. And mm-hmm. by the time I was like, oh, I'm really excited to see this film. And because I, I was in Mexico when Rio Rock was, was playing in the United States this spring. And so a lot of people were like, oh, you haven't seen that already because you haven't been to Rio Rock. And so mm-hmm. I think it was it had quite a buzz. But first, I yeah, just wanted to just let you know that that was that was literally like my favorite my favorite film at the whole thing. And it was so cool to see. Um, all the Palestinian climbers there as well. And I think they got a, you guys got a standing ovation, which I had rarely, if ever seen that at like a climbing film, you know, I think of you as a peer, I think that you and I have both been writing and climbing for very similar 
time periods. And I really just think of you as kind of like a writer's writer. I know that you write your ass off. You've written so much. And I just wanted to know, yeah, where, where did you grow up and how did you kind of get into climbing and writing? Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, thanks for the kind words about the film and stuff. And yeah, we can talk about all of that in a bit, I guess. But um, it's I just wanted to say that the, the mountain film experience and just this whole film experience has been a real trip and kind of a real highlight to the year for me. So, And I think mountain film was probably the peak a moment of all of that in, in no small part because um, all the climbers from Palestine were there. And I, for, for, uh, I, for clarity, I just, I like, I really like to nerd out about writing, especially, um, on this podcast and just the artistry of writing. So yeah, we can get nerdy uh-huh. down with being nerdy about writing. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, speaking of nerds, I grew up as a, as a real nerd in, um, New York. I was born in Brooklyn and lived in a couple different towns in Westchester County, kind of in grade school. I started climbing when I was around 16 years old and I I had gotten a, my girlfriend, high school girlfriend, got me a climbing lesson for my birthday and it was up at the Gunks. You know, the rest is history. I like fell in love basically right on that first day. We did a route called Horseman, which is a 5.5 and that was my my first ever rock climb. Um, So if you're, if you uh, know the Gunks, you'll certainly know that one. I I guess I I never really thought of myself much as a writer. I was more interested in math and science. Like I had some experiences in high school and college where writing just became more and more a prominent part of who who I am and how I express myself. Like I remember I won a sonnet contest in, in high school and I did like there's just some other like r- random things like that. But what's a sonnet contest? I, it was just like a poetry contest that some organization held and you had to write a sonnet, you know. Oh, like a, a sonnet. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I wrote about golf actually. And, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> somehow that, um, and you were a golfer too. <laughs> I was, I was, yeah, I was a, a golfer in high school. Yeah. And so then, and then, you know, I went to, um, college in Boston and I started out as an engineer cause I was really into math and science and stuff. I quickly transitioned out of that because I just found myself needing to 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 write and do more kind of creative and liberal artsy stuff. And so I, I kind of transitioned away from engineering into English and politics. And when did you start writing about climbing? I started writing about climbing when I was doing a study abroad program in New Zealand during college. And it was a really, it's actually kind of a, an interesting story, I think, but I, I was, um, I was way into climbing at that time. You know, I, I basically went to about a week of, of classes and then turned in my midterm papers and, um, didn't go back to school for, you know, most of the semester (laughs) and, and literally just climbed all over the South Island of New Zealand with, um, my friends and, you know, got into alpine climbing and trad climbing and, you know, kind of the multi-pitch adventure stuff that they have there and sport climbing and bouldering and it's just got everything. So it was like a cool, a a great place to cut your teeth, you know, and and really learn just about every skill you could ever want to learn as a climber. And so I was way into climbing and I had heard on uh, this local news station about this guy named Mark Inglis, who's a New Zealander, who had just climbed uh, Mount Cook, which is the tallest mountain on, in New Zealand. 
and he had just climbed it like 20 years after losing his legs on this on this very same mountain um, from frostbite. He had like an epic about 20 years ago. He lost his legs, and so he, he he returned and climbed this mountain again. And it was kind of this like local news station. This is all very. I mean, we had the internet, but it wasn't like the, like the degree that we have information sharing and stuff now. And so it, at the time, I remember feeling like this seemed like a cool story. I don't know what you know. There's this guy who had just lost his legs, and he had climbed this mountain. I didn't feel like many people in the U.S. would know about it or care about it, but it seemed like an idea for a story. And like a lot of my, I mean, I took some journalism classes and stuff in in college, but this was like this very DIY mindset that I had where I I was like, okay, I'm going to go and interview this guy and write a story about this. I'm not sure exactly where that idea popped into my head, but it popped into my head and it was... It's a strange and weird thing to to want to do, and it was probably you know born out of the fact that I wasn't actually really doing schoolwork because it, <laughs> I had already done my midterm papers and stuff, and so I was looking for something to to kind of stoke that creative drive I had, and yeah, I mean this was a, a, just a series of firsts and, and a series of huge mistakes, but I. I re I found out that he owned this vineyard, you know, in the northern part of the South Island. I reached out with a call and asked if I could come and interview him, and he said yes. I drove up there the next day and like took two days to get up there and like slept on in farmers' lands and like on beaches and stuff. And you know, New Zealand's just so amazing. It was just like this awesome experience in in of itself, just getting up to go see this dude. I got to his house after like this kind of two-day mini road trip, sat down on his couch and pulled out my little tape recorder that I had just bought and asked like, you know, 10 of the biggest softball questions you could ever ask anyone in an interview. And it lasted about 45 minutes. And, you know, I went home after that and spent the next like six months trying to write a piece about this guy and what he had done and try to make it as good as possible and like literally six months and (laughs) it was terrible like um the piece i I made so many mistakes doing it it never got published anywhere it was just a piece of shit writing like just a terrible article and that's something that i literally spent a lot of time on where i would you know I would wake up and, you know, spend two hours working on the first paragraph, and, you know, did that like several times a week, you know, and it was like, that was long story short. Well, it's not really a short story at this point, but I learned a lot from, from that kind of just, you know, jumping into the deep end and failing so spectacularly. So I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. That was my first experience writing about climbing. And I, in the, in the course of trying to get this, you know, shitty article I'd written published, I was... I learned how to make contacts with editors and those those sort of led into you know the professional career I have today or you know had at the time when I uh, started working at Rock and Ice but I really got the confidence to to just be like okay if you want to write about something you just have to pick up the phone and call the person you want to talk to and you don't need permission to do this you don't need a fancy degree you don't need like you, you you literally just need to be willing to waste your own time basically and be okay with failing and and so uh, i was i think good at both of those things and so i was on my way yeah have you ever like circled back with that climber or uh, tried to write about him again ever well it's interesting because he 
he had a, a moment of notoriety in the climbing press about a decade after that experience when I first interviewed him because he he went on to climb Mount Everest and was, you know, I don't know, some the first uh, double amputee from New Zealand or whatever to do right, it. Yeah. And, but while he was, you know, getting this honorific on Everest, he would be, like literally like stepped over dead or dying bodies um there are people who needed help and so people were giving him lots of grief which of course if you're following any of the news today that's you know this is just another a recurring story that happens every Mm. year in those on those big mountains but so he i i kind of recall um that's that was the second time i came across his name and i was just like damn like this guy seemed like an asshole it made me reflect back on my little softball interview where i was sitting on his couch and asking him why he to tell me how great he was and just kind of realizing that i don't know it was just like it was just a moment of of reflection of like oh you need to actually be it's not enough to just like go and talk to people you have to be very skeptical and um and learn how to navigate bullshit because there's a lot of bullshitters out there too <laughs> yeah yeah writing up writing other people's stories is is very difficult and i think very difficult to do well um i i've actually kind of gotten away from writing other people's stories myself just because i think you can only kind of even even your own nonfiction is, is has a, an element of fiction i used to i worked in my alma mater up in gunnison uh, western colorado university for a while and i would have to write the alumni like 500 words of like a portrayal of an alumni you know and it's like this is like just talk about bullshit it was like so much bullshit into the writing but it is really hard to write someone else's story and, and do it well and, and the people the writers that do that it's it's quite a an incredible skill I think that the the trick about doing justice to a, your subject is that you have to be fair. And that doesn't mean that you need to be unbiased. You know, I think that you can own your bias and own the fact that you have a point of view and a perspective, but you have to be fair to people and you have to give their side of things. And you can do that if you can do that in a way that treats people with respect and dignity you know just at least the bare minimum even if you're excoriating them in a, in a profile or, or taking them to task for some for something or another I, I think that there's a this um metric of fairness that somehow stands alone and and kind of guides the a lot of the decisions that get made as you as you work on a piece like that to fast forward a little bit, I know that, and I think this is where we probably connected for the first time, was when you were working at Rock and Ice. So you kind of cut your teeth, and I imagine you, you did some freelance, and, and, and then you arrived at, at working at a, a magazine in kind of like the last era of, of that type of magazine. How did, how did that start, and what was that experience like working at, at Rock and Ice for a long time? I had graduated college at that point, and I was kind of doing a, the itinerant dirt bag thing. And I was living in New Hampshire because I, had, after graduating from school in Boston, I went up to New Hampshire because I'd had, I'd met some uh, northeastern climbing friends who were, they were kind of like the first real core climbers that I was exposed to who took me, you know, under their wings. And I don't know, it was just like the first community of um, really committed climbers that I was part of because. I didn't really have that at the college that I went to. I went to Tufts in Boston, and now there's, like, a robust climbing program there. There's, like, gyms everywhere in Boston. There's, like, Austin Sidak and uh, Jen Fleming are, are also Tufts alumni who, who came out of there. And there was no one like 
Jen or, or Austin at Tufts when I was there at that time. So yeah, it was just like meeting people and meeting like really people who really, really wanted to be climbers was something that I would, I'd kind of been looking for. And um, I found them in this, in this crew from New Hampshire. So I was living with them. But then spending summer or uh, sorry, spring and fall seasons in Yosemite doing the, you know, the cross country drive in in the Nissan Sentra back and forth (laughs) that I was living out of at that time. During one of those trips, I stopped in Colorado and a college buddy of mine who lives out here on the Western Slope or grew up out here. um, We hung out for a few days and partied in Aspen one night with his brother and on the way down from Aspen after partying up and up there one night we i knew that the both rock and ice and climbing magazine were were in carbondale i had had some correspondence with um the editors at both of these publications and i just i don't know i you know as an ambitious young man i took it upon myself to just uh, reach out and and ask to just come and say hi and, and meet them face to face and um we went into climbing magazine first and everyone who worked there was like really disgruntled and had nothing nice to say about Carbondale, about Climbing Magazine, about, uh, they were just really pissed off. And, um, and then I went over to Rock and Ice after that. And it was like way less corporate papers everywhere. Mm-hmm. And like, I met Allison Osius. I met Matt Samet. Uh, I'm sure I met Dwayne at that time too. Matt, was uh really generous and he was like dude if you want you should you know come do an internship if you want to like get into climbing writing you could you could definitely come do an internship here if you wanted and that was literally like (laughs) that's all all there was to it you know after doing the cross-country drive to yosemite i think i did end up going to yosemite anyway or after he said that for a few weeks but then i kind of wrapped my head around the idea of doing something different than just trying to, you know, be dirtbag in camp four. And so I agreed and I came out and did a, a, a summer long internship at Rock and Ice and learned a lot. Actually, I have immense uh, gratitude to Matt Samet in particular for really teaching me so much and um, taking me under his wing and, and helping me out, but also Allison and Dwayne and everyone who worked there at the time. Amy Goldhammer was also this uh, editor who was working at Rock and Ice, and she was kind of this new hire that had didn't really have a huge, a very robust climbing background, but was more of just from I think she had worked at like some major, you know, uh, publications in New York, like Vogue or something like that. So she had editorial skills, but not necessarily climbing skills. But I think it became apparent to the editors that um, I was maybe a better fit for being an editor at Rock and Ice than Amy was. And so after I, after the internship was over, they basically fired Amy and hired me. And, um, and then I worked there for almost 10 years. Wow. So you, you keep up with, with evening sends like quite a bit now, right? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's always, it's been something I've been doing actually for since 2006. I think I started it on blogger and, uh, I don't recall actually why I started it, but it was, I think just to have a blog and that's all it was. And and it's since become maybe something a little more like, you know, there's people can subscribe to support evening sends and support my writing and, you know, access paywall stories and stuff like that, um, which has been an amazing shift because during the era of 
uh, trend of like advertising. I just have no business sense for that and no tolerance for it and no real desire actually to work with um, advertisers in general. And um, I've left literally tens of thousands of dollars on the table of people who've like just wanted to, you know, place ads for the year or whatever. And I've just been un unmotivated to get back to them which of course i regret uh when you know i have to like pay my mortgage <laughs> yeah, like totally. the next month but uh-huh. i am motivated by the readers and people reading my work and who who want to read my work and support it and so i find my my motivation to like do this side hustle is much greater now that it's more of a subscription model it's been something that i have always treated as a side thing and not my primary uh, way to make a living because of that I think the the quality of work is is maybe higher but also more sparse like you know I don't feel the need necessarily to to put out posts every single day or every other day or you know on some kind of regular schedule I enjoy feeling like having an idea that I want to explore and then being able to put it out there and and that's that and um and so that's what that that's what that side is yeah, and you work with a, a lot of other writers as well, right? Like you have your The Day I Sent column, um, which mm-hmm. those have been some some fantastic articles. Um, and is that something that people will come to you with an idea or you'll see that they did something and you'll ask them that they want to write? Like how does that, that process work? Yeah, um, it's fallen off a little bit. I've been publishing a new one in a, in a few, uh, few months or years even. Um, as uh maybe we can talk about but i think people are less less excited about doing the work of churning out a 1500 or 3000 mm. word piece yeah writing is um, fucking time consuming too man. <laughs> like especially now that there's other ways to like podcasting like we're gonna do an hour's worth of work here you know right. <laughs> and like right um and yeah I, no writing is so fucking it, hard it is it's so fucking yeah. hard yeah 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 yeah, and um, I so the the day I sent its uh, idea was really born out of this idea that there was no literary tradition for sport climbing and bouldering, which, um, as I'm sure you remember, Luke, that people used to scoff at the idea that the that the, either of these disciplines of climbing were sort of rich enough or meaningful enough to to produce the kind of work that that makes up climbing's great stories and storytellers and traditions and stuff like that. So I, yeah. And I wonder not to interrupt your thought, but I like, I wonder if, if now gym climbing and like Olympic climbing is, is taken that, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, I've, which all that has meaning as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the meaning comes from the 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 hard work of like sitting down and thinking about what it is that you've done and why you've done it and what it means to you i'm a huge believer in that process like if there is a purpose for writing about climbing and writing climbing stories it's to have awareness and to enrich the the climbing experience for yourself we all get pleasure out of reading great stories and stuff like that but to me the real payoff and is has always been in the actual writing process and so to the degree that I can encourage people to go through that like laborious, like at times painful work of, of trying to create uh, you know, a piece of writing that you're proud of, a piece of writing that speaks to some universal themes that we all experience and kind of capture 
something that um, that people can relate to, but do it in a new way. Uh, that's that's where you're going to, I think, have like lasting satisfaction that goes beyond just like clipping the chains on whatever you're you've been working on. Yeah, so that's that's uh that's my my uh, hobby horse, I guess. Yeah, and I think to add to that, I, you know, when you when you write about something, I you like learn more about yourself and. You know, we had an article that was like why climbers should write and writers should climb uh, by Serena Lee in, in one of our zines mm. a while ago. And it's like, yeah, it's just so personally enriching. And like whenever I talk to people about writing, it's almost like, well, do you journal? You know, I feel like journaling it is at the heart of, for me, like all writing, you know, it's just like that writing, you know, initially just brought more like meaning and more reflection into my life and then it like turned into a career but like i think it's so cool that you have that have you ever thought about like doing a book of those i do have i i I have uh fleeting ideas that um i have a whole notebook filled with stuff like that of things that i entertain um i'm working a little bit on a my own book right now and um Hopefully that'll be done at some point. I mean, there's this like new new wave of kind of niche publications cropping up and f- basically uh, riding your coattails, Luke. You know, we've got, uh, I think, Summit Journal and Mountain Gazette and I think Ascent is going to come back soon. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, I, I think that that is going to be a thing um, that these certain certain things come back and um, there is a niche and I don't even yeah. know if it's it's I'm I'm like there but I I think I'm just like the zine is just uniquely there because the the zine is still an extension of of things that were before it and and everything but I'm just kind of riding the wave accidentally <laughs> that that it's it's coming back but I, I saw a big a lot I don't know if they were paying people to make those posts but that uh, was it Summit Journal is coming back. Mm-hmm. I just that blew up on on social media for a couple of days um, that that's returning. Yeah. So um, and I, I never Levy even knew was, that it, uh, was very um, uh, he worked hard to to reach out to uh, a lot of the so called influencers on yeah. social media and get mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of buzz. I, I support you know Michael and what he's doing and everything, but I think that that strategy of like telling everyone to post the same thing on the same day doesn't really work that well. Like <laughs> it's like clearly. It doesn't feel like very genuine, I guess. Yeah. No, but we're talking about it. Right. You know, <laughs> yep. um, but, and I'm excited for them and, and yeah, congrats to, to Michael for relaunching that. I didn't even know that existed in the first place. But Yeah, that was the other funny thing about that is that I guarantee, like there's <laughs> some people who are like, I'm so happy this is coming back and you're like, did you even know it existted in the no. first place? <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't, and I'm 44 years old, you know, yeah. like, and I'm, I'm a total climbing nerd about literature and stuff, but... A yeah. lot of people who were, you know, I think that they were probably born after the last issue was in print, so... And I, you know, you brought the Mountain Gazette, they've, they've done a tremendous job of relaunching and branding and, mm-hmm. you know, taking something that was a free publication in that glory print era and then you know, almost the, it's even bigger than it used to be. It's like a roadmap or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and that, <laughs> yeah, the, like one of those Rand McNally. Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. You, you know, the, the roadmaps we used to have all have in our cars that yep. uh, there's probably one under the seat somewhere, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the Mount Gazette has done a tremendous job too. And I think like just bringing back print, you also have to have that social media savvy and you have to have, you know, I know the guy that um, does the Gazette, I think his name is Mike as well. Mike, I forget how to pronounce his last name, but super, super nice guy. But he's got the savvy of, I think he worked in the ski magazine industry. So it's Mm -hmm. like, I think, you know, we saw all these magazines drop, but then 
in the ashes. I think that other things are coming up that are hopefully more independent and pay writers well and everything like that. Um, gosh, yeah, getting into the writing rabbit hole, I could just talk about this stuff for hours, but um, I do want to start talking about Palestine. And like I said, I was just so, so into that film. I, th I thought it was just remarkable. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big, you know, as I'm sure you are too, I'm very critical of climbing films and, and I had a climbing film that was there a mountain film that didn't you know tell much of a story but it was just like a passion project for me but I think that that film for such a short film it like it told a meaningful story it was heartwarming it kind of got to the essence really of, of what climbing was about and then these major major um heavy things but um yeah I'd like to just yeah hear hear your perspective um you know you're Palestinian American was it both sides of your family that have roots to Palestine or no, just my father's Your side. Your father's side, okay. Yeah. Um, so growing up, was Palestinian culture a big part of your life? How, Not how? really. Um, I mean, I, my uh, extended family, um, we have a lot of, a lot of my cousins are West Coast folks. Um, we were like the one Bisharat, uh, part of the Bisharat clan who, who were in New York. Um, and I, I mean, basically growing up in Westchester in New York, I was like surrounded mostly by Jewish, you know, people and, um, not, I didn't, I don't think I knew any, any other Arabs. Um, so that wasn't a big part of my upbringing, but that was kind of part of the reason that I wanted to go to Palestine and, and kind of explore this side of my identities because it was something that while growing up, it was some. It was something I had uh, confused feelings about at the time. Uh, the, the movie kind of very gently kind of alludes to this idea, but basically the 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 uh, cliche of 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 Palestinians, especially in the '80s when I was a kid, was like, you know, you're a terrorist, and and you know, I recall like telling uh, telling my friends' parents what my uh, where my last name came from and what it meant, and um, seeing you know like a basically like grimaces that they couldn't hide you mm -hmm. know creep in i was something i was kind of embarrassed about actually i i would lie at some point and tell people that i was french or that my name was french because they would always ask what my what my name meant um and it's, it's part of that you know post 9 11 as well is like discrimination well, towards arabs in that sense yeah or, i think yeah. that that was part i mean at that point i was in my 20s and i didn't give a fuck about that kind of stuff um but as a kid you're susceptible to wanting to fit in and, and please people and and my family is a christian palestinian and so we're not muslim and so the the anti-muslim animosity that that kind of gripped america in the wake of 9-11 was a little bit removed from me because that wasn't really part of my identity, but, but there is kinship there too. I mean, most, most Palestinians are Muslim. So. And so had that, uh, that idea to go there, did you, did you find out there was climbing there or like, how were the, the seeds kind of planted for this, um, this trip? It was started pre COVID actually. And the, uh, Tim Bruns, who's in the film, who, started the climbing scene in Palestine with uh, another guy named Will. Well, he reached out some, I don't know, 2019 maybe. And uh, so that was that, portrayed really, really good in the film too. <laughs> like this, 
this vegan hippie from Boulder was like reaching reaching out to me about climate in Palestine. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was kind of a little recreated, of course, uh-huh, but sure, uh, yeah. um, there was um, real seed of truth to that. It was actually a, a much more ant- antagonistic interaction that we had because. You know, he reached out. He told me about you know having started this climbing pro, this climbing gym in in the West Bank, and um, you know wanted me to put an article up about it on Evening Sense. And um, as I'm sure you know, Luke, you get a million requests from people who want to leverage you as a media person to to promote whatever it is that they're doing every and, day. Yeah, yeah, and after 20 years of that, I have a healthy degree of skepticism about anyone, but I was just particularly sensitive to, to this in a large part because of uh, my heritage. And so I got on the phone with Tim and I was just like, you know, I was like, basically like, why should I trust you as this like white dude who like wants to like save, you know, these people who have basically, you know, more serious things to deal with in their lives. Like what, I, I don't know. I was just like, how do you answer that question? And he answered it really well, actually. I forget exactly what he said, but he, he, and uh, he basically made me trust him that he was, his heart was really in the right place. And the fact that he was so t- put back on his heels by my kind of asking him a question that blunt, um, I think really he went above and beyond to just sort of prove his his credentials and just where his heart was. And I've seen a number of folks who have tried to start like climbing programs in like some random fucking place and out in the middle of nowhere, you know, that's often, you know, has political issues and other stuff and they are doing it. And it, it always seems to me like to get themselves a trip paid for to like go to this adventurous place and then come back and, and have this like calling card that they can use for themselves and so yeah kind of like the white christian savior exactly yeah 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 and tim is not any of those things at Mm -hmm. all and he he made me trust that he was not any of those things and you know and then we like met up in person and we were like okay let's like go go to palestine and uh, together and you had never been there before i had never been there before i have a lot of family that i've you know displaced family that lives in jordan I'd been to Jordan with my dad uh, when I was younger, and um, I've been to Lebanon, but I'd never actually been to the Palestine. Then COVID hit, and our trip kind of got delayed, and blah blah blah. But um, at some point, you know, I had like done been working a ton, and I had some extra money and free time coming up that spring, and so and Tim hit me up at the right time, and he's like, "Do you want to buy a ticket and go to Palestine in May?" And I was like, "All right, let's do it." And, um, and once that, once our trip was planned and it was really just this like personal trip for me, like I I was psyched to go climbing and get a tour with Tim who knew the place well and see my grandfather's house, which was really important to me. Once that seed got placed, then the, the real rock folks had kind of heard, heard that I was going and they knew about Tim, they knew about this story. And for them, there's a, a bunch of things that clicked for them. They're like, oh, we could use Andrew as this kind of narrator to get us into the into the story of telling a, a, or a film about Palestinian climbers and the climbing community there. And so I was kind of like this missing piece of the puzzle for for them. Yeah, and then that process was interesting too because I was, I you know, I didn't have the most favorable view of real rock i I mean they make good good films but they make like one kind of film and um i think we all know what 
I mean when I say that like mm-hmm. they, they have like a model and I wasn't it wasn't clear to me how the Palestinian story would really fit into that I was really nervous about signing on to be part of something that's so fraught and it has so many like you know landmines that you could step on and just ruin your reputation or the reputations of people in the film or it was just it seemed really complicated and i was not sure that real rock was the right outfit for this but anyway we you know we had like lots of conversations where i very openly expressed my reservations they heard them and i think that they went out of their way to honor some boundaries i guess and and also just do their due diligence like we we interviewed um some a lot of the folks who are in the film and on zoom calls and they they just were really impressed with the the idea that they couldn't fuck this film up and Mm. um (laughs) so the stakes were high i think and and i think that yeah i i agree they did a great job and the the film came together really well and i'm i'm really proud of how it turned out I'm um, I'm just like honored to to play a small part in in shining a spotlight on on the people in the film who are really like the stars of the piece. I'm assuming most people who are going to listen to this podcast have have seen this film. You know what was captured well and what wasn't captured at all that that really defined your experience. Well, I think that they, I think that they captured just how political everything is for Palestinians and even something like climbing where it's it really is an escape from the politics but you can only escape so much of it and it's still this kind of ever-present thing that's like uh you know shadow that's following you around and and potentially you know really ruining your day um to put it mildly so I think that they they did a good job of showing that but also not capture not like presenting these people as like um victims you know they're 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 doing fine you know they're they're thriving in 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 their own fucked up in this like fucked up society that they live in like they're they're enjoying climbing and they're having a good time and and getting better and progressing and and um and enjoying all of the things about climbing that we know and love here and um and so i think that balance is really humanizing and it's so jarring because there's so little media that gets made about Palestinians that is positive Mm. and so I think that that's really that's really what is so resonant and so striking and and that's why you know people who aren't even climbers um, are I think really responding to the film how much fear did you have going into that experience and, and was there fear while you were there like fear of what? I guess like fear of, of violence um, or getting mm-hmm. caught in violence or fear of the unknown. Yeah, I mean, I have two young daughters now, so I, anytime I feel like my tolerance for wanting to do gnarly stuff is is definitely lower. I don't under by the way, I don't understand like how Tommy Caldwell and Alex Honnold like continue to be as badass as they are <laughs> while being dads. But yeah, yeah, I mean, not that I was ever anywhere in their uh sphere of of uh, accomplishment anyway no, i know what you're saying even yeah even with with i don't i don't have kids but i even just getting older <laughs> yeah there's there's more but um yeah yeah i mean so but i i mean i've traveled uh around 
especially in the Middle East too. It's just been around to enough places that it, I know that the reality on the ground is, is so different than what you see from afar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like if you were to come to America from some remote place, you might think that you would be at risk of getting shot by, and if you walked into a public school, but we walk into public schools all the time. And, and so, yeah, the, our perceptions are often skewed. I mean, like while I was there, there was this huge skirmish that happened in Jerusalem, like right where we were walking a few days earlier, but where we were at that time was totally safe and life felt normal. And I think that's just part of how, how, how life goes. And, you know, of course you could always be like, get caught in a bad situation. But I think I wasn't really, that wasn't the, at the top of my list of things to be afraid of. I, I was more afraid of fucking up the film and doing wrong by the people that we were portraying. And that was, I think, part of the stress of, of being over there. Yeah. Cause it was your first time there. It wasn't like you had been there and then you're, you're going, you, you didn't, you didn't have like in-person relationships with the Palestinian climbers beforehand. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tell me about building a bond with these climbers. I mean, they all just seem like great, joyful human beings um, who truly represent the spirit of climbing. Um, yeah. Just tell me a little bit about getting to know these climbers and, and what that meant um, to you. I mean, I felt welcomed from the very first moment I stepped foot in Palestine and people were so, I've never experienced really hospitality like I did while I was there and generosity and just walking around the streets and meeting strangers and, you know, having them find out, you know, what my last name was and, you know, they were giving me food and like just taking me on as just like this classic like um just i i think Arab, I, I think the arab culture is is very warm uh mm. in a lot of ways and that's something that i think most people don't realize but they it was so welcoming and so warm and and awesome too and i just really felt at home I, like I, I was made to feel at home right away and um yeah, I just loved it, and uh, hopefully I'll get to go back soon. What do you think about when you think about these climbers and, and how maybe different they are from American climbers as far as resources, but they still have to, they still have that universal spirit of climbing? Um, you know, one of the, the main characters, he had that, like, homemade <laughs> fingerboard, hangboard thing you couldn't even, like, touch or whatever. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, can you just talk about some of the differences that they might face and um thinking about your, your typical American climbing buddy versus your typical uh, Palestinian climbing friend. Just getting gear and stuff like that is hard. And so, I mean, like just everything that you kind of can take for granted in the West, like the ability to just drive, you know, six hours across, you know, the mountainous West and go camp at Indian Creek and be free from any kind of interference in your life and, you know, have meet other people who have, you know, thousands of dollars of uh racks of cams to that allow them to you know climb these cracks all of that is a far cry from what life is like there i mean the thing that i think is so amazing about palestine and israel is how small this territory is and i mean you can't uh there's a there's a marathon in palestine that um, to, to do the 26.2 miles or whatever the marathon length is, 
you have to run on the same road, I think, back and forth like twice because <laughs> wow. there's no stretch of highway or road in Palestine that's longer, long enough that without checkpoints, without any kind of uh, hassle th- that would be imposed on you. So their their ability to move freely is so severely restricted in this insane way that you can't, you really can't understand unless you see it in firsthand. And so I would say that's like, you know, one of the big things. I mean, but Palestinian society is very diverse. And like we have in the film, you know, you see people who are, you know, one of them is a dentist and, you know, has money and means and, you know, kind of can take care of herself. And then, and then there's Taufik, who's a Bedouin and he literally has no possessions. And And what does a Bedouin mean? uh, uh, The Bedouin are kind of like the, they're kind of like the itinerant desert dwelling, Mm. you know, ethnic uh, group. Traditionally, they're, they're kind of like itinerant groups who, who live in tents and stuff and travel around and, and, but they're, they're basically the most marginalized group in Palestine. Like they're, they're the bottom ranks of society and they do all of the really hard menial labor jobs often don't have, you know, access to education or, or many means and stuff like that. And, and so that, yeah, Tofik is, is really, you know, he, he lives a very, impoverished existence and i mean it's it's really shocking to see someone live like that you know coming from you know a a western place or it was it was interesting actually like some of the climbers in the film hadn't realized how tofik lived um until they saw the film like they didn't know that tofik lived that way um which i think just speaks to well it just captures just how um stratified Palestinian society is um, and diverse socioeconomically. Yeah, so all of that was interesting. And, and then, of course, like to have Tofik come to Colorado for a month and like stay here <laughs> and like be able to take him climbing in the desert and go climb desert towers and go to mountain film and win an award there and, you know, and just like, you know, take take them shopping and like Target and stuff like that. And I mean, Tofik had never. Um, wash dishes in a sink before except for one time when he was in prison um and you know he was forced to wash dishes in 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 this like uh prison that he was held in for no reason for a month Mm -hmm. and um so yeah to just come and you know you know be a part of this like um, things in america that we just take for granted and the abundance and the it's it blew my mind honestly it was just like it was just hard to overcome just how shocking it is to to think about how different what kind of different lives we lead and also just to be able to appreciate and really cherish the the experience of being able to share share that with um someone like Taufik and and it was it really honestly it made my year um so so memorable so fulfilling and and yeah just super awesome yeah, I think in the in the film you're kind of portrayed as this uh, older, crusty climber, <laughs> which I think you know we could we get to talk probably talk for an hour on the definition of crusty or whatever. <laughs> um, but uh, what, how would you say this experience was it portrayed well in the film? Of like, there was a mindset shift, there was a, a change in in who you are or, or how you 
view the world like was that was how that was portrayed in the film did you did that was that like very accurate of of like your internal kind of psyche i think a little there's some a little bit of hyperbole around my you know where i am as a character and i think a lot of it was rooted on this perception that people have of me from the more acerbic pieces of writing that i've put out over the years that are controversial i feel like i have a pretty full picture of you as a writer but i think that's in in my mind especially back in the blogging days you know (laughs) yeah 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 and i I, you know i have do have a reputation for pushing buttons and um but i think hopefully i'm coming across as a more sane and reasonable person and level-headed person than maybe my writing uh persona would lead one to believe yeah I, i would say that my my sort of cynicism about climbing was definitely soothed by that experience and but you know i think that there's a lot of the critiques that i have about climbing are are probably still relevant too like i think that there is a little bit of hyperbole around my kind of character growth in the film but i think it made it work and you know it's it's those themes are are genuine uh genuinely true to what i focus on you know as a writer which is like this constant search for what is meaningful and what makes climbing worth doing and so to the degree that 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 comes through in the film i think that that's very honest and authentic to to who i am yeah and i think we need characters in climbing to question everything you know um Mm -hmm. because i think there is a lot of a bullshit in our in our activity i mean i think in, in all aspects of American culture or a lot of aspects of American culture. What is, is next? Like, do you, do you anticipate going back there? Um, I know that a lot of them came over here and had a great time climbing. Um, you know, what is kind of like the next chapter for you with, um, with Palestine? Well, we're hoping to go back soon, um, maybe in December. And I want to give a, a, a shout out to Alex Honnold and uh, Chris Widener, who, um, donated a significant amount of like personal money to put in some solar panels on on some climbers uh, vegetable growing operation which you, you can kind of see in the film briefly that's huge because there are very few avenues for uh, Palestinians to or just opportunities for Palestinians to buy Palestinian grown food um, and so to, this is like a local farming operation that's born of the fact that this person's farm has been stolen from his family and uh, the olive trees that his grandfather and stuff used to tend to are now um, off limits because the settlement is blocking their access to his family's farm. And so he has this hydroponic operation that like right out of his house and it uses less water and it allows them to grow like you know healthy delicious lettuce and other kinds of vegetables and stuff that they sell you know in ramallah so we're we're helping these climbers out by putting in the infrastructure that'll allow their their operation to be even more sustainable and less reliant on the whims of of the israeli forces that are occupying the area and um and so that is a project that is currently in the works and we're going to go hopefully over there and see see the results of that being built and maybe do you know a little video or something on that honestly like a big part of this uh 
project has just been like this this real integration into Palestinian culture, and that includes like meeting people like myself who are Palestinian and American and live here, and and our climbers and getting to connect with them and like all, all of this stuff is just there it just seems to be like endless repercussions from from this film yeah and i think that just speaks to the fact that it resonated with a lot of people and um and moved them to wanna to wanna continue to be part of um helping helping palestine yeah well it makes me happy to hear that you're going to go back and continue that connection um and you mentioned you're writing a book. Um, is 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 some of this writing gonna be? And you said it was gonna be weird. <laughs> I remember when we were wait, hanging out in Mountain Film. You're like, I really want to have make make my writing of this book um, uh, interesting and weird. Um, is there is there writing about this trip in there, or is is that um, gonna be different? Different. Yeah, material? for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, this will th- there will be uh, Palestine in the book. Um, I haven't written that chapter yet, so I'm not sure what it's going to look like. But yeah, and I, what I have gotten down is has been exceptionally weird. So, <laughs> nice. I, hope, uh, <laughs> I hope you like it. Uh, I look forward to it. Um, all right, one last question: um, what What advice do you have for younger writer, artist, climbers that um, that are kind of coming up and and they they feel like they want to dabble? Um, yeah, what what writing advice do you have? Well, my go-to writing advice for anyone is to um, not put a filter on on yourself and to just not try to sound like someone who's a great writer. Don't try to sound like a, like a certain style or copy a person who whose style you um, like, but to just sit down and try to he- listen to the voice that's in your head and transcribe it as as honestly and f- as faithfully as you can. And um, I think that the process of doing that allows you to just learn a lot about yourself. And I think that's really the only reason, uh, or maybe not the only reason, but one of the best reasons to to be a writer. And um, yeah, I think climbing and writing go hand in hand because we have these amazing experiences, whether that's out in the mountains or just you know over the course of many months of projecting a sport climb or something to be able to come back from from an adventure like that and or a journey or a process or whatever it is and and to really think about what it is that is meaningful to you is immensely valuable and it'll make you a better person more self-aware person and um, whether or not the the piece of writing that comes out of it is is good or worth reading or read by anyone I think is kind of beside the point so don't be afraid to sit down and, and do that hard work because I think there's huge dividends that get paid back to you and help you grow as a human being. That was beautiful. Thank you, Andrew. Absolutely. Thanks, yeah. Luke. It was a real pleasure. All right, that was my conversation with Andrew Bisharat. Hope you all enjoyed that. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. Music for this episode is from Devin Dabney. And I'm Luke Mihal, signing off from a Greybird Day in Durango, Colorado. Fall is in the air. Peace.